listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And I'm Jordan McGillis. Joining us today is Dr. Ellen R. Wald. Ellen is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and the president of Transversal Consulting. She's the author of Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power, a book on the history and strategy of Aramco in Saudi Arabia. She writes weekly columns on energy markets, geopolitics, and foreign policy at investing.com, Forbes Online, and Arab News. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Hill, and various history and policy journals. She's lectured on energy and geopolitics across the U.S., the U.K., and the Middle East, and she's currently an adjunct professor of Middle East History and Policy at Jacksonville University. Dr. Wald, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Jordan and I attended your panel discussion at the Cato Institute, uh, I believe it was back at the beginning of March, on the Iran crisis and American energy security. And that really feels like almost a lifetime ago now. Uh, a lot has happened, obviously, with uh, the coronavirus and the price war. Um, so. We had planned on speaking about that, but um, instead, uh, just in this context, uh, I think it's a good opportunity to talk about uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia and the price war and what we have going on there. First, I think it's probably just important to give our listeners a little bit of background about um, energy production in Russia and Saudi Arabia. Just to start, can you give us a broad outline of how the Saudi oil enterprise works and the differences between that and Russia's enterprise and how those models differ from the American market system? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great place to start out because all three of those systems are very different. And in fact, the Saudi uh, oil enterprise is, I would say it's really unique. Um, it's technically a national oil company, but it has operated very differently from other national oil companies. So, um, you know, if you think of like PDVSA in Venezuela or um, the uh, Iraq oil company or the Iranian national oil company, um, Aramco in Saudi Arabia has always been um, much more separated from the government than any of those uh, oil industries has been. And the reason for that has to do with its origins uh, as an American oil company operating in the Middle East. Um, a lot of the other oil companies were, um, at least in the Middle East, had roots, had, had British roots as opposed to American roots. And so Aramco was originally a, a company that was, it was basically formed by four other American oil companies for the express purpose of um, drilling for Saudi oil. And so Aramco drilled for oil, and then its four parent companies, who were the shareholders, um, they were Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, and Texaco. And those four parent companies bought all of the oil that Aramco produced, and then they sold it uh, you know, through their various outlets. And that remained the case basically until the early 1970s. And it wasn't and from basically the 1940s, when Aramco was founded in, in the 1930s, it was only owned by two uh, American companies. And um, in, 19, in the early 1970s, Saudi Arabia, the Saudi government, actually bought a stake in the company. And that was a very unique thing to do at the time because the trend was towards basically violent nationalization. Um, the Anglo-Iranian oil company um, 
which later became BP, uh, which had been operating in Iran, was essentially taken over by uh, Iran. And that had been, that was really the, the model. And so Saudi Arabia really bucked that trend by actually buying out the company. And between the, the early 70s and, the, and um, the late 70s, Saudi Arabia bought up their parts of the company until they finally bought up the whole company. And um, and in the 80s, they transferred ownership of the company. It was actually for a, a while, it was actually owned by the Saudi government, but it was still a company that was um, domiciled in Delaware, in the state of Delaware, like most companies are, uh, which is a kind of unique thing uh, to do. And so it wasn't until the late 80s that it actually became a Saudi company. But the Saudi government basically maintained everything as it has always, had always been. So the company had an incredible amount of independence from the government. And the most important factor of that is the fact that Aramco sold oil and Aramco got the money for that oil, and then they would pay to the Saudi government in taxes and royalties and rents and dividends and things like that. And that was a very different setup from any other national oil company, um, such as Iran or Kuwait, for example, or uh, Venezuela, where basically the oil company produces the oil, but the government gets all the money, and then the government would you know, give the oil company what they thought it needed to um, maintain. And so the dynamic in Saudi Arabia was flipped, and that enabled Aramco to really have control over its finances and grow into um, and really essentially a multinational company, whereas most national oil companies really didn't expand beyond their own borders. So that's a very unique uh, aspect of Saudi Arabia's oil production, and I think it also enabled the company and the country to benefit so much more from oil production than other countries. So Venezuela, basically, they they had a lot of problems because their company wasn't well run. Their government raided the company all the time, um, and Saudi Arabia didn't didn't experience that. They're in very very good shape. When you look at yeah. Russia, and I'm going to just preface this by saying I'm not an expert on Russian uh, oil, but sure, yeah. the Russian system is is different in that there are a bunch of different oil companies that are partially privately owned, partially um, owned by the government, but they're also some of them are also traded on the Russian stock exchange. So it's it's not quite as diverse as America, where we have lots and lots and lots of oil companies. Um, you know, there's not that many in Russia, but you do have a, a system where you've got a variety of different oil companies. Some of them, and I think most of them, have partial government ownership. Um, and so when, say, Russia goes to make a decision, when, when Saudi Arabia, I should probably take a step back and say, the the level of oil production in Saudi Arabia is set by the oil ministry, is set by the government. And so the government, the oil minister says, we want you to produce 10 million barrels a day. And Aramco does that. Um, in for uh, for many years, the head, the, the oil minister, has been a former CEO of Aramco. So there's a lot of um, affiliation between the oil ministry and Aramco and, and the companies. 
Yeah, so with these sort of unique arrangements in mind, um, could you just walk us through the timeline leading up to the start of uh, this so-called price war? Um, oil prices were already down about 30% because of uh, the coronavirus, uh, just the drop in demand for oil. But then what happened between OPEC and Russia, um, I believe it was at the summit in, uh, I believe it was in Vienna, towards the beginning of the month? So what we saw happening in February was a significant drop in demand from China. I would say China's oil demand dropped about 30%. um, But remember, um, China's oil um, consumption is about 14 million barrels a day. Uh, I think they import about 10 million barrels a day, sometimes a little more. So um, I think, you know, what... Global oil consumption hadn't yet dropped by 30%. It was 30% of Chinese oil demand had dropped. Uh, And we didn't really have a a good idea of how this virus was going to affect the rest of the world. But it was clear that there was a drop in demand from China, which is the world's largest oil importer. And so in the lead up to the OPEC meeting in March, there was always supposed to be an OPEC meeting. It was scheduled for... Uh, March 6th, and that had been agreed upon in the, the previous uh, December when the uh, OPEC and Russia had agreed to some additional uh, production cuts, and then they agreed they were going to reevaluate these cuts in March um, at a, what they call kind of a, an extra meeting because typically they meet twice a year. So they were going to reevaluate these cuts and possibly extend them. But in the meantime, in February, Saudi Arabia proposed deeper cuts to try to uh, counteract the effect of the drop in demand from China. And Russia kind of hemmed and hawed, and they were like, we don't really think that this is necessary. Let's evaluate the market some more. Um, But a lot of people were very uh, positive that there was going to be an agreement to cut production even more. Um, Maybe not the extra one and a half million barrels a day the Saudis wanted, but that they were going to reach an agreement on this. And so, um, but I cautioned against uh, assuming that this was a slam dunk because Putin came out a couple of days before the meeting, uh, even a week before, with some pretty uh, strong language uh, that indicated that he was giving uh, his oil minister, Alexander Novak, quite a bit of uh, – he was basically setting the tone of we, we don't see a need for this. We don't see a reason to cut production at this point which led me to believe that China hadn't cut its uh, oil uh, demand and its its orders from Russia. And so the meeting uh, starts, and OPEC as a whole agrees to cut production more. But then when they get to the OPEC Plus meeting on uh, on March 6th, uh, it looks like it's basically – it's basically a no-show. I mean, Russia has no interest in in doing this, and the meeting just completely collapses. And there's clearly some kind of animosity going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia, and they don't even roll over the current production cuts. And Novak walks out of there, and he basically says, "No, we didn't. We didn't roll these over in April. You know, it's all over." And then comes Saudi Arabia's response, which really, to me, seemed like it was very much delivered in response to Russia's refusal to uh, agree to more cuts. And they basically said, well, we're, we're increasing production. And, you know, this is and, – and then they came out with saying they uh, issued their um, – what are called OSPs, their orders, and, and they basically sent out these um, orders for uh, petroleum in – uh, in April, and they were like, 
how did these prices look? And these were really low prices. And then they came out and said, well, we're going to increase production to 12 uh, million barrels a day, which is their limit. Before that, they were producing under 10. And that's really where this narrative of a price war started because Russia's like, oh, well, we're increasing production back to where we were before. And then Saudi Arabia's like, well, we're increasing to a million barrels a day, plus we're going to pull 300,000 from storage. And so that's where people start saying, wow, this looks like a price war. The issue is that Russia didn't quite fire back. And in fact, a week later, it became apparent, a week or a week and a half later, um, as this was, was getting going and, and prices were dropping, suddenly we saw these massive cancellations of events, canceling flights, uh, economies shutting down, and that's when demand really started to drop. So initially it looked like the, the price war had kind of, they'd each made their opening salvos, and then they're going to see what happened. Then suddenly, a week later, on top of that, you get the drop in demand from coronavirus, and now we're looking at oil prices. Oil prices had been in the 50s. Uh, they, they dropped down to the 30s. Now we're looking at oil prices possibly dropping into the teens uh, because we're seeing such a massive decline in demand coupled with this increase in supply from Saudi Arabia. And that's really where we are today. If McDonald's and Burger King started selling Big Macs and Whoppers for 50 cents or 25 cents, we wouldn't really be concerned about about that. We'd say burgers are on sale. This is the good news for people who want to eat burgers. Uh, why is this sort of circumstance interpreted so uh, negatively in the United States? Well, I think if, 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 uh, if, Burger King and McDonald's started to cut the price of their their burgers so much, you'd also probably have the cow industry getting concerned because um, you know either either Burger King and McDonald's would be taking a huge hit because they're basically selling their burgers for less than you know they they can they're producing them for or or not making very much profit or the there's an oversupply of beef. And the cow industry is not making enough money. So I think I think it's a little a little bit more co complicated than that. But part of the big issue in the United States is that the U.S. is actually the largest oil producer going into this whole uh, shenanigans. The U.S. is producing 13 million barrels a day of oil, but the U.S. industry uh, produces oil at much higher cost than Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, it's basically the the lowest. You know, U.S. producers a lot of them in the shale oil regions like Oklahoma and Texas and New Mexico and uh, and those regions are producing oil for you know it, it, the, I think the low the lowest that anyone can really produce it for is forty dollars a barrel. So suddenly you know the price of oil now some of these even though the price of oil is technically around twenty some of these producers aren't looking are trying to sell barrels of oil for like you know. $4, $6, $10 a barrel. And so they're losing money with every barrel of oil they sell. And that's bad for the industry uh, as a whole. And so we're going to see, if, if we're already seeing massive layoffs because a lot of these companies just have to cut production. They can't afford to employ people and to produce oil if they're not even covering their costs for every barrel sold. Uh, plus, so... So we're seeing that, um, and the oil industry had really been a very strong point in American industry, uh, and then there's all the ancillary industries that go along with it. So it's it's 
a problem because we're such a big oil producer and a great deal of our economy, particularly in these regions, is very much dependent on this oil production. And if they can't make any money, then they're going to go bankrupt. Yeah, and so it's sort of interesting because of the unique position that the Saudis and R- Russia are in, they, as you said, they produce at a um, at very low cost, and maybe because of some of what we talked about it in the intro, you know, they, they have the ability to um, withstand a loss of revenue for much longer than uh, producers in the U.S. Possibly, what do you make of the argument I've seen people put out there that? It seems almost sort of conspiratorial, but they uh, I've seen people argue that this you know so-called price war might actually be a form of co- cooperation between the two uh, the two states and um, as they see maybe a long-term advantage in uh, pushing out uh, specifically the shale producers here in the US. I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that this is some kind of underhanded cooperation designed to get rid of the shale oil producers and here's why that it didn't work in 2014 and it's not going to work because you're not getting rid of the oil. The oil, if if a company goes bankrupt, that's very sad and it's very difficult and a lot of people are going to be harmed and a lot of people are going to have a very difficult time providing for their families and, and that's a terrible thing that happens. But the oil is still there and the ability to produce that oil is still there. And when the price goes back up, Unless there's some sort of legal impediment to that production, a new company is going to form or uh, a larger company that had uh, purchased the assets when the first company went bankrupt, they're going to see an opportunity and they're going to start drilling. So this idea that it's a that it's some kind of coordinated action to kill shale, I think, is insulting to the intelligence of these uh, oil producing countries to suggest that they don't realize that the oil will still be there. Um, plus the fact that oil has now gone so low that these countries are being harmed too. So while Aramco can produce a barrel of oil at a cost of $2.80, they have lots of other costs to, to deal with. And when you're only selling oil at you know, $20, $25 a barrel, the company the company is still bringing in plenty of revenue, but they're not. But they're going to be in trouble in terms of, of long-term covering costs, the long-term health of their fields, their long-term uh, plans, and they've also got to pay these taxes and these these royalties and uh, dividends to the Saudi government, which needs the money. But Aramco is also now um, part of it is actually floated on the Saudi stock exchange, and should they have other shareholders to uh, answer to as well? So the fact that so so this is causing them uh, also a lot of a lot of difficulty. Uh, we've seen, in fact, the Russian government has said, you know, we can withstand you know oil prices in the 30s, and we'll just uh, sell assets from our sovereign wealth fund, and that's fine. But you know that's not the preferred way to go. Uh, so I think that, that the fact that oil prices have gotten so low is, uh, I think it's, it's, it shows that, that, that um, if this was a coordinated uh, attempt, they severely miscalculated because you don't want to push oil prices down to the teens. It's fine. You know, I, I could see maybe if they want to push it down to 40, maybe 35 would definitely take out some of the um, higher cost producers. But, but once you're, you're in the territory that we're in, uh, with prices threatening to go even lower, everyone is in trouble. How does 
Aramco's uh, new publicly traded status affect their incentives here? Well, I think that they have an added incentive now to keep their stock price up. And this is proving to be difficult because, um, so for example, a large portion, well, I wouldn't say a large portion, but a pretty decent portion of the Saudi population was, um, they were they were very much encouraged to um, they were encouraged to invest in the company to buy shares, and so that means that the government has an incentive to try to keep the share price up. And they made a very big deal how right after they went public, the price went up, and Aramco got valued as the largest company in the world, and they got their two trillion dollar valuation. Uh, but since then, it's really gone down, and now it's it's down quite a bit. And so they have this added incentive of needing to try to uh, stabilize the stock price and possibly push it up, particularly because once June comes around, um, the Saudi uh, investors, a lot of the Saudi investors, people were incentivized to buy shares and hold on to them through June. And if they held on to them through June, they would get bonus shares. But once that incentive to hold on to those shares goes away and they get their bonus shares, they can all start selling. And so um, these people aren't going to want to sell their shares at a price lower than they paid for it. And so that's that's an issue that, that they have to face. And considering that oil prices are now extremely low and it doesn't look like they're going to come back uh, any time before by, by June, they could possibly have some very unhappy and disgruntled people who invested a lot of their savings into a company that's now worth less than what they paid for it. Yeah, I think it was yesterday or it might have been early this morning, Trump and Putin, I saw they had agreed to uh, um, to discuss the oil prices and as they continue to fall here. Um, the details of that were sort of vague from what I read, but just in general, what's the significance of Russia and the U.S. officials meeting to discuss oil prices? And I think it's vague because they were pretty vague. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of, of, of vagueness going on. I think the, the official quote is they agreed on the importance of stability in global energy markets, which right. is like saying, we all agree that donuts are delicious. <laughs> You know, and yeah. we, we, we all we all agree that that. And so I would really um, caution against reading this as uh, something like the U.S. and Russia might do some sort of oil deal. Uh, I think we need to kind of keep our heads in reality and realize that the United States is not going to join OPEC or OPEC Plus. The United States is not going to do a deal with them. Uh, this is not how our free market system works or our somewhat free market system works. Um, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out the possibility of some kind of, of um, assistance to U.S. producers who are really suffering. But for the whole, it really seems like the United States doesn't see low oil prices as the biggest problem right now. Um, it's it's not. I, I think that if we start to run out of storage space for oil, then it's going to be a problem, then then we're definitely going to have a problem. But it's certainly not the kind of problem that involves, you know, rethinking whether or not we want to get involved in, in production deals with autocratic countries. So I wouldn't be surprised if we very little comes of this and we don't even see any kind of meeting between uh, the Russian oil minister and the secretary of energy. What are some plausible policy responses that you think could arise here from the U.S. side? 
Well, I'd, be, I'd really like to see some follow-through with this uh, decision to purchase um, American oil for the SPR, uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. That's, um, you know, that's, that's a very small thing that they can do. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not going to you know, save, save companies, but it's certainly uh, something that, that can be done. I know that um, we've seen uh, at least two energy companies, I think uh, Pioneer Energy and Parsley Energy, which are um, big producers in, the, uh, in, in Texas and the Permian and other shale oil regions, have requested that the Texas uh, Railroad Commission uh, hold a proration hearing. So prorationing is basically a way for the state regulator, so regulator in Texas, to basically say we're going to establish um, quotas, in a sense, for various oil companies in the state. And um, this is something that's been done in the past. Uh, it was done during the Great Depression when oil prices were below a dollar. Um, it's it really the, the the issue is that it's something that can only really be done on a state level. So it's something that that Texas can do for Texas producers, but it does really require the buy-in of producers because back in the 1930s when they first started to to do this, there was a real issue with like conservation. People were pumping and pumping oil, and then they were it was sitting out there, and it was um, it was evaporating. And so the the Texas Railroad Commission tried to establish these this prorationing or basically kind of kind of quotas, and they really didn't have the ability to enforce it until finally the Texas governor sent in the National Guard and the Texas Rangers to really try to enforce this. So if all of these companies get on board with this, then I wouldn't be surprised if we could see some sort of um, some sort of prorationing or regulation on the state level. Oklahoma also has its own mechanism for doing this, and and but I really think it's it's unlikely to see regulation on a federal level. Yeah, I, I guess in terms of the price for, is there anything that we haven't talked about here that um, you think is worth mentioning um, going forward? Well, I think that Russia has really signaled its. Um, you know, it's its willingness not to essentially engage in a price war. We had we saw last week that there was a, a meeting between uh, the big Russian oil producers and uh, Alexander Novak, and he's the Russian oil uh, minister. And a lot of these companies basically said, "We don't want to produce more." And so that's basically a symbol of, of Russia is essentially saying we're we're not engaging in this price war, and it seems like really uh, Saudi Arabia is the one that is, um, you know, increasing its production. And the big question is really going to be uh, whether Saudi Arabia can find buyers for its oil in this atmosphere. And if it is able to find buyers for its oil, then we're going to see some pretty good demand numbers coming out at the end of April. But if it's not able to find buyers for its oil, then I think oil markets are, are really going to be in trouble because there's, we're going to have an oversupply of oil on such a vast uh, amount of, of oversupply that it will it will be very difficult to work through this oversupply uh, unless uh, the global economy gets humming again very quickly. Seems like a lot of that is probably out of uh, any anyone's hands at this point. So, it's, I think there yeah. are some things that can be done. I mean, there's certainly um, you know diplomatic efforts that could be made to uh, you know to Saudi Arabia. Really, right now, Saudi Arabia is the one pushing this. Uh, I do think that that if if President Trump decides that this is an issue he wants to 
you know, go on, I do think he has, um, you know, the ability to try to pressure Saudi Arabia not to overproduce by so much. Uh, you know, he, he does have some leverage here. I just think there, there isn't a lot of indication that he sees this as an issue that needs to be addressed at this point. So, um, so I would really, I, I, I just don't see, he hasn't indicated that this is something he really wants to take action on. I think if he decides that it's a problem that he wants to address, there are various mechanisms that are available. Yeah, and just uh, one last thing before we go. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the Energy Week podcast that you put out, which I would certainly encourage our listeners to go and uh, take a listen to. But uh, where can our listeners go to find out more about your work and uh, what else do you have coming on the horizon? Sure. So listeners uh, can definitely find me on Twitter. I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, at Energized Economy, E-N-E-R-G-Z-D Economy. And I can also visit my website, which is Ellen R. Wald, E L L E N R W A L D dot com. Uh, and I also write regularly for Forbes, so you can follow me there. Uh, I write a much more um, investing focused column every week on a uh, platform called investing.com. And uh, I also write regularly for Bloomberg, so you can check me out there as well. Great, our guest. Definitely be sure to listen to Energy Week podcast with uh, my co-host, Brian. Great. Our guest today has been Dr. Ellen Wall. Dr. Wall, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me.